I think one of the main roots of what's troubling men in their sense of masculine identity today is that going back to the sexual revolution in the 1960s, what we've got is a severing of manhood from fatherhood. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Will Noland, a writer and social commentator who focuses on masculinity and morality. Will taught at Eton College and was there for nine years before being sacked for refusing to take down an online lecture on patriarchy. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Well, Nolan, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me, Lee. You came into the public spotlight at the start of 2021 after you got sacked by Eton College. Um, so you were sacked for refusing to take down a YouTube video um, about the, the patriarchy. So can you tell us what was in the video and why was it worth uh, losing your job over? Well, having worked at the college for around nine years at the time that the sacking happened, I was quite familiar with what the curriculum content on masculinity was. And I noticed that it was fairly one-sided in a way that we see in so many leading institutions nowadays, whether universities or schools. So toxic masculinity, for example, was identified by the American Psychological Association in 2018 as consisting of things like dominance, assertiveness, competitiveness, stoicism. But really, some of these traits aren't toxic at all. They have, in fact, been the very things that men have been valued for over the centuries, especially by women. So when I heard that some of the boys were feeling a bit depressed about the messaging they were getting about some of the core elements of what it means to be a man, and one of them even complained to his mother that he felt like his pillars of his masculine identity were being crushed to dust, as he put it, I thought, well, why not for the flagship debate course for the older boys about to leave the college and go off into the world of university or work, why not give them a counter-narrative to that and say, look, some of these things that are now being demonised have actually been, when properly harnessed and put in the service of protecting the weak, serving women and children, when properly harnessed, the very things that men have been most praised for. And given that it was for this flagship debate course called Perspectives, where the aim is to spark discussion, so boys are told, here are some ideas, and what do you think of them? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Why not? Let's take sides and explore the ideas. That's a really intellectually stimulating thing to do. So that was the idea, present a counter-narrative and challenge what they normally get. Sadly, however, the lecture never made it to the boys at Eton because the pre-recorded version was watched by a member of staff who found it offensive. And if boys were allowed to debate these ideas in the great spirit of Eton, where debate is so important, it was deemed unsafe, a hostile work environment. Now, I didn't refuse to take the lecture down, point blank. I said, could you let me know what the problematic elements are? I'm happy to edit those out. Let's have a discussion about this. And this went on a few times, me asking for clarification, because my job as an Eton master was to uphold the aims and ethos of the college. And it aims at broad-based critical discussion and independent thinking. Now, if boys can't explore the full range of ideas in the classroom, and even more than that, a teacher with a disclaimer on a private YouTube channel that the college 
said to add to the channel can't even enable boys to explore those ideas outside school in their free time, then it seems like the range of debate is really being narrowed down based on what one person gets personally upset by. There was a broader legal point here as well regarding the Equality Act. And this says that curriculum content, so the ideas, but also the delivery of the ideas, are both exempt. So schools and universities should be able to have discussion across a whole range of issues without somebody saying, we have to cancel that. I mean, what would it be like if that wasn't the case? Let's say someone is upset by Othello or the Iliad or a Dickens novel. That's it. We can't teach it. So there was that element to it as well. And I really felt that when this was taken away in my job, the things I was most passionate about, the things I really believed about at Eton, had gone with it. So in a sense, I was sacked for a job that no longer really existed. It wasn't the one I applied for. You said uh, after the sacking that Eton's soul was under threat. Uh, what did you mean by that? And do you think that's part of a, a wider institutional problem? Yeah, I think there's a sense in which these institutions right at the top of education, the elite ones, are the ones that are most affected by an ideology that is hostile to what they have stood for traditionally. And it's very much a top-down phenomenon. So if you look at how the principles of cultural revolution work, somebody like Antonio Gramsci did a great job of setting them out. What you want is the, the long march through the institutions, as he put it. So you need to control the means of cultural production things like media, schools. And that way you can basically get a stranglehold on what kind of ideas people are exposed to. And that's what we've seen more and more. And there are concerns about freedom of expression, not just in secondary schools, but universities as well. So when I say that Eton and Solar was at risk, what I mean is that let's think about the fact that the, the college has a debate room in every boarding house. This is a big part of a boy's life there. It's produced something like 20 prime ministers, all going into the world of political debate. Now, if debate is going to be stifled because a member of staff feels upset by the mere prospect of boys discussing amongst themselves some ideas which are being put out there to say what are the strengths and weaknesses, it really feels like that tradition is under threat. You've got a, quite a large amount of support as well um, from Eton boys, from other teachers at Eton, and even from government ministers. I think that's because the incident was something that caught the mood. There's a, there's a wave of this elsewhere, and we see it not just in my case, but in other instances of deplatforming of lecturers and some of the ways in which even the Oxford Union, for example, is less open to debate than it has been traditionally. And you can get a mob of people saying this person isn't allowed to air those ideas, even just so that people can disagree with them. Now, what's really going on there, I think, is that there's an attempt to shut down uh, rational discussion itself as something that is threatening. If people don't really believe in truth anymore, then why bother listening to the arguments? Because there's no persuasion to be had. It's all just about power narratives and who can control what goes on. So it's a sad thing that the weighing of pros and cons 
in argument isn't seen to really have any merit anymore. If it doesn't fit your particular worldview, then don't bother listening to it. You can just shout loud enough, and if you're lucky, maybe get the person fired as well. Then you can carry on stuck in your own blinkered way of looking at things and never have to have that challenged. But that's not really education. That doesn't develop the mind properly. Since uh, leaving Eton, you've worked on your website, Nolan Knows. You're focusing on masculinity and morality. What are some of the dangers and pitfalls facing men that want to live an, an upright life these days? That's a great question. And I think one of the main roots of what's troubling men in their sense of masculine identity today is that going back to the sexual revolution in the 1960s, what we've got is a severing of manhood from fatherhood. So what is a man really with these qualities that men have been valued for? Things like being willing to show courage to put yourself in danger, for example. That was traditionally to do with the father's role in protecting the mother and child. If we go back to early human beings, thinking about the division of labor, the man is the one doing most of the dangerous hunting that's far away from home. The woman, because she's breastfeeding with the child, is going to be doing the foraging closer to home. So that sense of being brave, showing courage, being willing to face danger, that was tied to the role as a father. So being a man is very much about having a, a calling in your very body to those particular virtues. But if you take it away, then it just becomes a kind of empty swagger. So a man's job, for example, is about providing for the family. But disconnect it from his wife, from his children, then money just becomes a kind of scoreboard for beating other men with. And you can see that in many other cases too. What about, let's say, um, physicality in terms of going to the gym? A lot of guys like to do this. Uh, that's because, from the viewpoint of evolutionary biology, the, the physique is a kind of signal of genetic quality to a woman, saying, I can provide for you, I can protect you, I'm physically capable. But it can easily become this kind of toxic obsession in the way that people have outlined, where it's a kind of vanity project, and empty. So again, we want to bring back masculinity to fatherhood. I think one of the main ways in which young men uh, go astray is essentially to do with uh, wanting to be sexually active and buying the culture of that sexual revolution and seeing true freedom and the meaning of manhood as just sleeping with as many women as possible and they lose that sense of deeper fulfillment of family. And that longing for, for sex is really a longing for a connection with a woman that goes beyond just the physical. And there's a kind of irony in that, in telling people they were going to be set free from the oppression, the constraints of family, and able to achieve happiness in their own way, depression has actually increased massively since then by around tenfold since the 1950s, 1960s. And it's currently the leading cause of disability. And male suicide, it's the biggest killer even beyond heart disease in the age roughly 15 to 45 range. 
So it seems like a lot of the things men have been told are going to make them happy have actually had the opposite effect. So exploring this family uh, idea a bit more, because we're kind of going right back to Marx, really. Destruction of the family was one of the key um, ways that he felt he could kind of bring in his uh, teachings. Yeah, that's a very important point. He said that the destruction of the earthly family was key to the destruction of the heavenly family as well. And obviously he had great antipathy towards religion. And we've seen this in the Russian Revolution very clearly. Somebody like uh, Alexandra Kolontai, she wanted to break down the family unit as in a way the, the last bulwark against the revolution because the family was seen as one of the main foundation stones of capitalist order. So things like uh, no-fault divorce and abolishing alimony laws meant that they imagined they were going to be bringing in this fantastic new shining future of freedom when people were cut loose from the family and could finally do away with that burden. But they realised very quickly that it wasn't turning out how they imagined it would. Without the father's support and protection, women and children were very vulnerable. And it was tragic in that there were women and children prostituting themselves in the street for bread. And the men who drafted Kolontai's reforms ended up being shot. And this was only around a decade or so after they were introduced. But the regime realised very quickly that, no, if you do try to dissolve the family in the hope of bringing in this new socialist order, we quite quickly have our plans scuppered. And even until around the 1980s, uh, Gorbachev was still really trying to push home pro-family messaging. It took a long time to recover, but we don't seem to have learned that lesson from history very well. And there's still lots of messaging about the traditional family, the nuclear family being something that we need to get rid of, these calls about smashing the patriarchy. And it's foolish because the main point of the lecture was that all societies ever that we have even indirect or direct knowledge of have all been patriarchies. This is the canonical position of evolutionary anthropology, that patriarchy is something that is not a mere construct that men impose on women to oppress them. It's actually, and this is one of the points that was raised as offensive in the lecture, it's actually based in female biology. And the paradox at the core is that the more gender equality you get in a society, so the more it advances towards that aim that you think is going to make men and women more similar, the more they actually diverge. So that's where the title of the patriarchy paradox came from. When you give women choice, they choose, in fact, what the social construction theory would make you think they wouldn't choose. So they will opt to stay at home with the children rather than work, for example. Or if they do work, they will opt for the more traditionally feminine roles. So in other words, equality just gives human nature the chance to express itself better. Right. So... As a father of five, you're probably quite an expert on this topic. Well, six, six now, and the seventh, seventh wow. one coming in a few months, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. So how does fatherhood fit into the kind of masculine ideal? That's a great question. So I would argue that fatherhood really is the 
core of manhood. So what makes a man a man is his potential to become a father. And it's really the secret to his um, identity and how he can fully unlock his full potential. Now, do we have some men who don't become fathers? Yes, of course we do. They're still men. It's about having the potential to be a father. And this really is the confusion of what is a woman in a nutshell. So why isn't a trans woman a woman? Because a trans woman isn't a woman. The reason is that a woman is a potential mother, just as a man is a potential father. That's the essential difference between the two. So a trans woman isn't a woman because there's no potential for motherhood there. So sex is binary in that we all have either large gametes or small gametes. And even people whose chromosomes don't fit the standard pattern don't confuse that. So this is throughout nature. Sex isn't determined by chromosomes. It's determined by gamete size, sperm or egg, in all species everywhere. So what makes you a man is your potential to become a father. And this is basically a kind of call to self-sacrifice in the service of your family. And you see this in statistics, like when a man becomes a father, when he becomes married, his earnings get a boost. It's in the order of around 15 to 20%, most studies say. And this happens even with um, identical twins, for example. So it's not the case that someone is just uh, a harder working person and then they get married to reflect that or they, they work harder and then decide they're going to have children. No, it's when they actually get married, when they have kids, they get galvanized. They take their extra duties, their responsibilities more seriously. And there's a lot today about no rite of passage for boys. Most cultures have had a rite of passage and Traditionally, it's been something about testing the boy's ability to endure um, pain, show courage, things like that. You can see some of the quite extreme ones, some of the African and uh, Native American tribes. Maybe it's you have to go out for a few days alone and kill a large animal and bring back the meat to show that you are now a provider, not just a consumer. Maybe it's going to be about jumping from some large wooden platform to show you can overcome fear that way. So these are testing the qualities they're going to need to um, be of good service to the community. Now, we don't really have anything like that. In fact, that's the exact kind of thing that boys are being told is, is bad, especially in schools anyway. And sadly, many of them, because you can't eradicate something that's so deep in human nature, will seek it in places like gangs as well. We'll get on to this a bit more with thinking about the difference between the bad boy and the soy boy and how we need to avoid those two extremes and the best way to do that. But they crave this. And fatherhood is a kind of harnessing of these and a chastening of them. So we've got all these impulses and we want to direct them to order them properly so that they benefit the people around us. It's not just this reckless bravado. So you see yourself as leading your wife, as leading your children uh, towards virtue, traditionally. That's the main role of the father. And certainly in Christianity, and up until recently, uh, European civilization and Christianity were basically the same thing. The father's role is to get his family to heaven and in so doing get himself to heaven. So it's a model of service rather than selfishness. And the idea that 
in Christian marriage, the husband and wife become one flesh. It's also a way of honoring the fact that we are by ourselves somehow incomplete. This is why I said earlier that sex isn't just about a desire for the, um, the body of the woman. It's about the whole person, the two people coming together. So you look at the statistics on married men living longer, for example, being happier, happier, suffering uh, lower rates of depression. This is all because people are uh, built for marriage. And there's no culture in human history that has ever done without marriage. It's a human universal. There are different forms of it. Perhaps it's going to be polygamy, so multiple wives. I think around 80% of societies have had that. But even then, it's still marriage. This idea that mere promiscuity is going to lead to fulfillment and be good for children is a relatively new one. And so, therefore, is the idea of men finding any kind of purpose outside the family. You touched on an interesting point there about the, um, sitting at the computer all day. So it feels like this is one of the, the biggest changes for men. That we used to do kind of practical labour and it kept us busy and then you, you would come home and relax. Whereas now, kind of relaxing whilst at work because as you say, you're sitting at the computer. Um, do you think that has had a, a, a big effect on, on men in general? Yeah, I think so. If you, if you go back through history and the example of... Uh, Jesus is probably the clearest model of masculinity here. What we have is men being willing to put themselves in harm's way and shed blood for the community that they're a part of. So that's why the soldier, for example, we talked about how no country has conscripted women into frontline combat. The soldier has been seen as such a masculine role. And Jesus shows this in that the body is put through all kinds of terrible pain and ultimately the crucifixion for the sake of loyalty to an ideal. An ideal. And when a man hasn't got any kind of great uh, challenge to rise to, then that spirit of self-sacrifice and that feeling of having gone from a boy to a man is undermined. So I think many people are looking for that. And earlier, when I mentioned that there's a real attraction of gang culture to boys. I think that's part of it because you've got initiation ceremonies. You've got a sense of loyalty and respect. You've got the sense of taking risk for a tight-knit group that you care about. You've also got, crucially, um, a hierarchy and a, a leader, a male figure that you can look up to and you know will protect you, but you probably also fear too. And it's not a coincidence that many of the boys who end up in gang culture also don't have a biological father in the home. So one of the other controversial points about the lecture is that precisely because patriarchy is based in human nature and partly in women's biological interests, also in men's, there's no sense of smashing the patriarchy because all that really means is smash human nature. So the choice is patriarchy or patriarchy. It just depends whether it's going to be a good one or a bad one. Now, an example of that would be that with the dissolution of the traditional family structure and more and more single mothers, what we actually have is the welfare state stepping in and supplanting men in the traditional provider role. You also see it 
with boys who lack a strong father figure at home ending up attracted to gangs instead because they need to get it somehow. And the more that schools become feminized, the more that universities become feminized, the less well they're going to serve boys. So we have to be careful that in demonizing some of these masculine traits, we don't just push boys over to the dark side instead. We have to accept the traits for what they are, and they're not going away anytime soon. Testosterone and violence aren't ever going to go away at any point in human history. We can see that because the most bloodless political philosophies, based on the idea that humans are naturally good, and if we can just get rid of corrupt social structures, we're going to create heaven on earth. Those have actually ended up the bloodiest political realities. So we have to accept what we are and accept that it requires lots of hard work to train boys into being something respectable, to train them into being a man. That takes effort. And the father's role is in shaping boys and helping them be guided through that process. Recently I had uh, Lord Alton on the show and we talked about chivalry and C.S. Lewis's writings on chivalry. I think people nowadays think chivalry is kind of holding the door open for someone. But the more I kind of learn about it, the more I realise it's so much deeper. Mm. I'd really like to hear your thoughts on, on chivalry and how it can manifest in today's world. Chivalry is essentially the, the West's answer to the problem of masculinity. What do we do with the reality of what men are? We can't really eradicate it, nor would we want to. The idea that we can eradicate it and that we should is behind this toxic masculinity messaging. Instead, chivalry says there's lots that is good here. Let's see if we can train it and direct it into the service of the weak. Now, the comment that I had in the lecture was about machismo versus masculinity. And the swaggering bravado of machismo is shown by the man who has forgotten that his strength is to be put in the service of the weak and into the service of his community, specifically women and children. So it's not about intimidating people. It's not about violence with guns and knives in the street like you might see in rap culture, for example. Instead, it's about being a man with great manners, who's developed the virtues and who is able and willing to resort to violence if necessary in the defense of what is good but is otherwise going to be meek and I think that word meek is the one that the debate really hinges on because to many men they think it means weak who knows why maybe it's because the two words rhyme meek weak and that switches them off but it's the opposite because the weak man sometimes might not feel angry at what he should feel angry about or he might feel angry and not be able to control himself so he either doesn't feel enough of it or he feels too much and it overpowers him but the meek man as Aristotle put it is the one who feels the right amount of anger about the right things at the right time in the right way so there's a real kind of inner composure there so let's say, for example, when I was teaching in some of the schools earlier in my career where the students were really misbehaving in class 
It was a more difficult environment, national challenge school, nothing like Eton. You get this feeling of anger because you want the students to be learning and doing their best. Now, when I was just starting out, I thought, this is bad. I shouldn't be feeling angry. It's bad to shout at a child. It's bad to discipline them. But then I realized, especially from talking to some other teachers who'd been there much longer, that no, you're doing a good thing by being harsher with them to get them to behave so that they can learn better and get the grades and do what they're here for. So the anger is like a prompt to do the right thing. And if we tell boys that all forms of uh, dominance or aggression or any feelings of anger are bad, then you are hollowing out what it means to be a man. You're hollowing out that ability as a father, for example, to give effective discipline and boundaries. And you are hollowing out, and we see this in the behavior in um, many schools, especially for young boys who end up expelled, some of them, and then end up in prison as well, sadly. It often starts when there's no biological father in the home that leads to less effective boundaries and it spills over into other areas of their life as well so chivalry is about trying to take this idea that there's a, a power in being a man but we have to restrain it we don't just unleash it on everything all the time and try to always show it to the maximum it's not like if you put a, a gas into a container and it always expands to the limit. That's a really childish view of masculinity, when you might always be showing off how much money you've got or showing off how strong you are, something like that. No, it's much more powerful to be restrained. It's much more powerful to control it. And chivalry's been about a way to get that control. And meekness is the ideal. The really strong man is the one who can control himself. There's an image that always stays in my mind for this, which is G.K. Chesterton's picture of giving a weak man a sledgehammer and telling him to swing it as fast as he can and stop it just on the shell of an egg without breaking it. He says the weak man can't do that because the sledgehammer has got too much momentum, but a truly strong man will be able to swing it as hard as possible and then bring it to a dead stop just as it touches the shell, no further. And that's the ideal of manhood that chivalry has. It's also got a specifically religious component to it in that it's the baptism of the warrior. So what we see in the figure of the Christian knight is all the best elements of the pagan heroes like Achilles and Beowulf, for example. C.S. Lewis says that the knight is a man of blood and iron capable of ripping heads off in battle. He's familiar with all of that, but he's also the best, most gentle-mannered guest in the hall. So he combines ferocity and meekness to the maximum. There's no compromise between them. And that is a very difficult thing for men to do. It's saying to you that you need to train your body to the maximum. And you also need to make this lifetime effort in terms of practicing the virtues and also about prayer and mortification because chivalry is ultimately a, a Christian tradition. We have both of them developed to the highest degree in the same person and if we don't have that then we're left with either the soy boy or in C.S. Lewis's term the sheep 
or the bad boy, the wolf. And neither of those figures can sustain a civilization. It doesn't work. The wolves don't care enough about the community and family and passing on their heritage. The, sheep's, the sheep can't defend against the wolves. So the ideal that chivalry presents for men is like the flock guardian or the guard dog. So you have the soft heart to care about the weak, but you're also hard enough to protect them if necessary. Whereas without it, men either become too soft to protect or too hard to want to. So it's taking the best of both and forging them into this one ideal that is a lifetime's work for boys to work towards and for men to maintain. I see um, you get a lot of uh, letters or emails to you from young men asking for kind of life advice because you, you put some of them on your website. And what would be the top tips that you would give to a young man these days who wants to kind of live a, a, a decent life in modern society? Some of the concerns that young men have raised with me are things like, I want to get married, but I'm afraid of no-fault divorce laws. I'm afraid that it will ruin me financially. And that's really sad to hear because from what I've said today, you can see that I think that marriage is really fundamental to an individual man finding fulfillment, but it's also fundamental to social stability and the future of culture generally. One of the big problems in falling Rome was the breakdown of marriage. Augustus made laws trying to bring marriage back, encourage more men to do it, but even that wasn't enough. Now, the fear, I think, is a sensible one to have, but that doesn't mean that we allow ourselves to be dominated by the fear. Courage is about doing the right thing, even though you might have a sensible amount of fear regarding it. It's not about being fearless. Now, statistically, you can look at the fact that even divorced men are financially better off than never married men for the reason I said earlier about marriage boosting a man's earning power. So to a young man wanting to get married but afraid to because he's worried that he might end up financially worse off after a divorce, the stats say that even if you do get divorced, you'll still be better off. The other point I'd say is it's still very possible for a man who chooses his wife wisely to find someone who's got a 10% or under um, statistical correlation with the probability of divorce. So even if you come from a family where your parents might have got divorced, for example, and that's uh, made you worried about your own prospects, plenty of people are making it work. And you'll be able to as well. So marriage will be my top one. And then after that, things like putting honor and duty above money. I mentioned earlier about depression having gone up around tenfold since the 1950s, even though the decades since then were also an economic golden age and real incomes went up by around four times. So people are wealthier than ever, but also unhappier. And this isn't what we should expect. If this idea that money is the main thing that satisf satisfies us is true, we should expect the opposite, happiness levels going up as real incomes increase. So for some guys looking at uh, choice of vocation, for example, um, what should they do with their lives, then 
do what is true and do what is good and right and that you believe in rather than just what you think is going to get you the most amount of money and you'd like to get more fulfillment that way. So the two things I've said already are relatively countercultural. So you get married fairly young if you can and then have kids. This will give you a new boost in your life. You'll take yourself more seriously. Number two, yes, we want you to earn money to provide for your family, but your job isn't uh, the core element of your identity. Your role as a father is, your job is just to help you provide for your family. So don't make an idol out of your career. You're not your career. Uh, St. Paul, for example, was a tent maker. It wasn't the biggest part of his identity at all. You can find many people like this. Even in uh, philosophy, somebody like um, Spinoza ground lenses. And philosophy was something that he deeply cared about but didn't get paid to do. So don't make the mistake that your job is you. And then beyond that, I think staying close to family and having really strong connections with your parents, even while you're an adult and with extended family as well, that's another thing that's important. If you look at our culture compared to, say, uh, ancient Chinese culture, it's very atomized, disconnected and individualistic. And this is something that human beings aren't really built for. I find it fascinating to compare nowadays the marker of adulthood in the West is seen often as when you no longer depend financially on your parents. That's what makes you a man somehow. Whereas in Asia still, you've got the idea that you become an adult when your parents can financially depend on you. It's the opposite. So that sense of connection to your family and the community beyond them gives another element of responsibility and meaning to young men that so many of them are lacking, just thinking that the way to live well is to make their bank accounts as big as possible and avoid marriage. I don't think that's a smart way to go about things. And then you've also got the consumer industry, whether it's uh, TV, whether it's online porn. Porn addiction is another really growing problem for young men starting younger and younger, even down to teenage years, sadly, as young as 12, 13, 14. I think this point about virtue being inner strength, and this is a biblical idea that the, the truly strong man isn't um, he who conquers cities, but he who conquers himself. A return to virtue as having the strength to control your own eyes. So what are you looking at? What are you spending your time on? What habits are you building? There's a sense in which if you just give in to those things, then eventually you lose the ability to resist them. If you look at some of the really harrowing accounts of porn addiction, um, you see that people hate it, but they can't tear their eyes away from it. And there's an important lesson there about self-control being true strength and indulgence ultimately leading to emasculation, so a kind of slavery to lust. So this idea that the truly strong man can restrain himself is one of the big points of chivalry that I think we are missing today. Well, Nolan, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thanks, Lee.